Greetings, listeners. This is Chris Heimerdinger, and this is Forever LDS. A little background on today's episode. This is my second interview with Dr. Thomas Wayment, Brigham Young University professor of New Testament and Classical Studies. I interviewed Dr. Wayment toward the end of last year, episode 41, Insights on the Nativity and the New Testament. It was December, therefore a conversation about the Nativity certainly seemed timely and appropriate. Today's episode focuses much of its attention on the Atonement, which also, seasonally speaking, is apropos. But the genesis of this interview came about much differently than my first interview with Dr. Wayman. Our first conversation, even though I'm virtually always inclined to get off into the weeds whenever a guest says something that prompts a question, our first interview was admittedly more planned, organized, all that stuff. This interview was much more off the cuff. I wasn't even sure I'd release it as a podcast. Essentially, it came about because I had several burning questions related to research that I was pursuing on my latest tennis shoes novel, Thorns of Glory. Many who follow this series know that my story is heavily intertwined with events in the last week of the life of Christ, also with the final battle at Camorra. Quite the ambitious agenda, right? But that's one of the unique opportunities of a genre like time travel. Anyway, as it pertains to the last week in the life of Christ, like any novelist, I wanted to bring to the table, to the story, something that was new and real, stuff that no other author has explored in any other fictionalizations, dramatizations of these events, new information, original insights, whatever. Dr. Wayment and I had already exchanged a few emails and it was clear that in order to glean all the info I felt I needed, we'd have to have a conversation. I asked if I could record it, just in case it was interesting enough to transform into a podcast episode. He said that was fine, but honestly, I wasn't sure if what ultimately came out of our conversation would serve the interests of Forever LDS. I wasn't sure if the discussion would hold the attention of the average listener. I feared it might be too esoteric, i.e. boring. The only real sin in podcasting or any other form of entertainment is to be boring, right? Okay, there are other sins, but boring is right up there. Maybe the worst. I knew the conversation would be focused upon some very specific research points and boring the listener to tears was a natural concern, especially if we just dove in, laying no foundation for the audience, who would become essentially like third-party eavesdroppers. Even in my novels, if I include an in-depth chapter note, I'll place it at the end of a chapter wherein the research applies. This gives the reader a clear point of reference. The foundation is laid. Most research never becomes a chapter note. I've read entire books just to make a single paragraph, a single sentence, sound plausible. Explaining all that to a listener would be about as effective as a hospital anesthetic. Moreover, and this was probably a little more concerning, some of the questions I wanted to ask Dr. Wayman might have been a bit controversial. 
why introduce controversy into my podcast if I don't have to? I'm certainly not afraid of controversy, but to do that, you got to lay a proper foundation. The audience can't feel like they're dropping in on the middle of the conversation. I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. I didn't think there was time to bring the listener up to speed on the mountain of data that serves as a backstory to the questions I wanted to ask. I wasn't sure Dr. Wayman would have time to re-rehearse all the doctrinal, historical, and cultural issues behind my questions. We'd already laid the foundation and backstory in our emails. Now I just wanted answers. I wanted to learn Dr. Wayman's perspective. Therefore, we could get right into the meat, potentially leaving podcast listeners in the dust. In retrospect, it was a very silly thought process on my part. Why? Because of the character and personality of Dr. Waymont. He is one of the most gentle, meek human beings that I have ever come across. I think if I'd have used those words to describe someone in high school, they'd have punched me in the mouth. As an older, more mature human being, such character traits are, in reality, deep compliments. Dr. Wayman, despite his intelligence and his faith, is one of the most giving and forgiving conversationalists that I've encountered. He's an expert on Greek and ancient history, particularly first-century Christianity. Speaking with him is an honor, yet my motivation was... This is the approach I'd like to take with my novel. Is it plausible? Is it plausible? Listening to the conversation later, I wished I'd just shut up more. I feel like I can hear during my various monologues how Dr. Wayman would love to chime in, but I just keep prattling on. Like I say, I wasn't sure it would ever become a podcast episode, so I guess I have that excuse. But the takeaway I got... If you're interviewing an expert, just seal your lips. Let the expert talk. I mentioned this later to Dr. Wayman after I started editing the episode, and he politely assured me that I was overthinking it and the conversation went just fine. Okay, but I fear I missed an opportunity to learn a lot more than I already knew as a result of being so hyper-focused on seeking a thumbs-up on ideas already marinating in my head. Doesn't matter, I guess. Tom has become a good friend, and I'm sure we'll speak again. Here's the point. In spite of every concern I might have had, this is a fascinating episode, at least in my view. Some listeners might have their jaws drop as they listen because they've never thought about the things we discuss in quite the way we discuss them. At least I had the luxury of several months and even years to let these ideas sink in. For some listeners, they might feel like it's being dropped on them like an anvil in a single hour. Okay, now I've really oversold what you're about to hear. Maybe it's none of those things. But it, it is sacred stuff. The atonement is a hallowed conversation no matter how you approach it. You can't get much more sacred than the atonement of Jesus Christ, what it means, how it occurred, and the historical events surrounding it. Add to that perceptions of the restored church as well as the rest of Christendom. Please understand, Dr. Wayman 
is a scholar of early Christianity. He comes from a modern discipline of analysis that today permeates virtually every academy of higher learning. He calls it the Germanic approach because the tradition was more or less established by German and European scientists of the 19th century who believed all scholarship must be very dispassionate, skeptical, and antiseptic. Very Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am. What can I say? I believe this approach works very well in fields like physics and medicine, geology and psychology, where it doesn't work, I feel, is in a field like religion or religious scholarship. Dispassion can certainly tame or temper or keep a faithful researcher honest, especially when combined with disciplines like archaeology or anthropology, but it should not dominate the narrative. However, it does, and it has. Many would argue that to totally eliminate bias is impossible. The scholar would just be a pretender. I happen to be one who agrees with that. Everybody has a bias, however determined they might be to try and hide it. But here's the real problem. The inevitable result of this modern, antiseptic, skeptical, dispassionate approach in religious scholarship is that it churns out an alarming number of agnostics and atheists. A bright-eyed, faithful believer goes in and a cynical, detached non-believer comes out. Dr. Wayman believes that number is as high as 20%, and I believe he's being very generous. Most, he concedes, who pursue a higher degree in these fields simply never graduate. That's what happens when you descend into the crucible of the theological departments at Yale, Harvard, Cambridge, etc. In other words, if a student seeking an advanced degree does not emerge as a natural skeptic, someone who questions the most fundamental aspects of their own faith and belief, how can they honestly call themselves an unbiased, neutral, truth-seeking scholar? Some academies might conclude that if they were to send out into the world any other brand of scholar, the department fell short. They failed. The good news is, at least as far as Dr. Waymond is concerned, this strict antiseptic approach to religious scholarship is starting to collapse from within. However, believers are still very careful to keep their biases, their personal faith, a secret from their peers. Healthy? I don't think so. How could that ever be healthy, to devote your life to religious scholarship but hide your true feelings about your faith? If Dr. Waymond is right, some dramatic changes may be in the works. It seems to be human nature that when something is repressed long enough, something true, something that's an inherent part of the human psyche, it kind of explodes. It comes back tenfold. Take the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, for example. We might just be on the forefront of this natural counter-reaction. It's abundantly clear from recent addresses delivered by our apostles to scholarly organizations funded and sanctioned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that the traditional approach to scholarship, 
that has dominated the world of academia for many decades is being rejected. See, today, in virtually every part of the academic world, if a religious scholar is conducting research that is perceived as apologetic, or in other words, in support of or defending any position of sincere faith or belief, that scholar will effectively torpedo his or her career. In other words, if you're a Catholic or even a Muslim and you write a paper that argues in favor of the tenets of your particular belief system, you are blackballed by your colleagues and peers. Your reputation plummets and your future contributions are tainted or ignored. It's true. It's why scholars who also are members of the church sometimes wait until they have tenure or until they're older and established in their fields. In other words, until they reach a point where they just don't care what their colleagues think before they admit to or write about, for example, corollaries between the Book of Mormon and New World Archaeology. Oh, I know you'd love me to name a few Latter-day Saint scholars who have done this. However, because I'm still trying to decide if this approach is wise in the long run or inherently hypocritical, possibly even cowardly, I will politely and prudently refrain. My point is that as far as the leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is concerned, scholars who publish on topics related to the restored gospel do not have the mandate to be neutral and unbiased and noncommittal. I'll provide a link in the show notes to an address recently delivered by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland to the Maxwell Institute for those who wonder what the Church feels is the proper approach for our religious scholars. In short, the ancient tradition of apologetics is very much encouraged. And for those of you who still think the word apologetic somehow has anything to do with the word apology or apologizing, it gets really tiresome repeating this distinction, but some folks just can't wrap their head around it. Apologetics has nothing to do with apologizing. It means making an argument, presenting an intelligent, logical, thought-out position. Anyway, as far as Dr. Wayment and despite enduring that Germanic, dispassionate, noncommittal approach to religious studies as espoused by the academies of higher learning where he earned his degrees, he did not emerge as a skeptic or nonbeliever. That doesn't mean he rejects the scholarship presented to him. Quite the contrary. He allows it to inform, shape, and elevate his understanding of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He emerged from that crucible with a much more nuanced, mature, satisfying, and eminently faithful conclusion, which I find invigorating, particularly as a result of what I've learned while reading his newly released English translation of the New Testament, which we discussed toward the beginning. Okay, enough intro. If my voice sounds weird in this interview, it's because I was fighting a cold when it was recorded. So be it. Here is the interview. I got to say, the translation, you discussed this with me in the first podcast that we did, and I ordered it 
very shortly after we did that podcast. It was well-received, and it was also something that really interested me. So I go on to Amazon, and I place the order, and I'm immediately informed that it's out of print and not available. So I probably should have just called you directly and seen if I could try to get a copy, but I paid my money, and so I waited so this was December, and I waited until the end of February before that book finally arrived. So I've been immersed in that ever since, of course, with the Come Follow Me program, but also just my own personal interest. It's as if every verse that you read gives you a different nuance to how you feel about verses of the scripture that you're very familiar with from the King James Version. We're so indoctrinated in that language, and we're used to, I mean, those of us who actually take the time to read the New Testament, we are used to that language, and it carries a certain mood. It, it gives you an emotional impression of what the event entailed, and your book gives you a whole different take on practically every verse. And I had no idea. I mean, you told me this back last December, and I wasn't sure how much I really believed that that was true. I mean, how different could it be? It's so different. You made the statement that Latter-day Saints in other countries who speak other languages like Spanish or German, they have such an advantage because they have translations of the Bible, the New Testament, that are in common, everyday, modern vernacular as far as their own languages are concerned. And the Latter-day Saints don't really enjoy that because we are so caught up in the King James Version. I now understand what you're talking about. The book is incredible because at the bottom, in all of your chapter notes, you will very fairly state that there's another, well, you'll say there is one manuscript which gives this rendering or this reading, and it's a respected manuscript, and so we need to consider the alternative. Or you'll say, this is in later manuscripts, and we think that it's dubious, but you'll give it to us. You'll offer us the option so that we can sit there and ponder it. And I thought that was gracious. I thought that was really generous to be able to do that. Now, here's my question. The King James Version, they had dozens of scholars who were involved in this translation process. They had committees and subcommittees and people overseeing those committees and the same thing happened with the Revised Standard Version and the New Revised Standard Version and the New International. I mean, with all of these different versions of the Bible, there were teams, whole teams of scholars that were involved in these translations. And yet here you are, not claiming that you had the direct help of anyone, that you did a translation of the New Testament that was specifically for the reading of Latter-day Saints, and you did it alone. How did you pull that off? A lot of time and effort, a lot of work. I have no idea how to kind of conceptualize how much work. For five years, it was really the only thing I consistently worked on. And for 10 years, yeah, I 
I got to the point towards the end where I could typically do a chapter a day. That became kind of my goal in a lot of it. But yeah, I, it's a hard answer. There is a lot of value in a committee translation. Like you said, it brings a lot of perspective and and a lot of energy and manpower. And uh, that would have been great. It would have produced a different type of product. How would a committee have produced a different type of product? I think when you consider what a translator is in a text like this, a translator is someone who engages the text through their own eyes, through their own experiences. And so you'll find a consistency in a single person translation that you won't find in a committee. Committees try to approach mechanical conformity and similarity so that every Greek verb, this particular Greek word will be translated the same throughout. But a single translator has that kind of more limited, if you will, or personal approach to the text. So you're experiencing me experience Mark, and you get the same me in Hebrews, and you get the same me in Jude, whereas you find a very different kind of approach where a committee typically assigns a book or a, a block of books to a group, and that feel can fundamentally change across those spectrum. For example, in KJV, you find a very different translator in Roman that you do elsewhere. If you're reading the Hebrew Bible, you find the same KJV difference in Isaiah versus, say, Genesis. And a single translator like a Tyndale or a Wycliffe or others, they bring a, a more consistent pattern to it, a more consistent rhythm, if you will. And so there's benefits and obviously limitations on both approaches. Well, at least what, what you're saying is the concept of a single translator is nothing new. Wycliffe did it and Tyndale, and so that's not totally unique, but no. maybe it was for speed or efficiency. I mean, what was the purpose of the King James translators? What was their thinking in having entire committees? Was it just to be able to break down the assignments to specific groups so that they could be overseen? What was their motive? A lot of times we forget that the King James Bible is an intentional revision of the Bishop's Bible. And so what they have is a Greek text called the Recaptus or Textus Recaptus. The Bishop's Bible, is that the Geneva Bible? No, it's a different one still. The Bishop's is the official Bible of the Church of England. And what they're doing is they're saying the Bishop's Bible is, is rather heavy-handed. It's not a great translation, in my opinion. And they're commissioned to correct or revise the bishops. And what they do is they really rely on Tyndale and some Wycliffe to do that. It's a really remarkable process when you peel back the layers. They're so influenced by Tyndale. So what they're doing is correcting the official, if you will, Bible by Tyndale and these very popular Bibles that the public really likes. I mean, Tyndale strikes a chord with people at the time, and I think what the Church is trying to do is saying, we need to own the best Bible, we need to own the one that's most accurate, etc. So, so KJV is a very corrective Bible in its worldview. Geneva is very interpretive, if you will. Geneva is trying to capture Calvinist dynamics of the day. 
I listened to a podcast recently that had a pretty intellectual speculation that they believed the Book of Mormon itself may have, that Tyndale may have been one of the spirits that was literally dictating to Joseph Smith some of the flavor of what the Book of Mormon says, how it preserved the King James language. King James light was, I think, the term that you used. And uh, the, the Tyndale himself may have been one of the voices behind what Joseph Smith was seeing in the hat or what he was reading from the gold plates. That would be an interesting idea that Tyndale the angel might have been... You've heard this, right? Yeah, I've heard similar expressions of that. From a translator's perspective, and I don't pretend to be in the realm that Joseph Smith does, I don't want to make that comparison, but a translator really has to dig deeply in themselves to find a rhythm or a style for the hymns and the speeches and the, the narrative, and there's these different types of speech in every biblical book, and I find myself really having to push myself to capture the language that a poetic. And I, I would love to hear how Joseph or others found that, you say, drawing upon inspiration there. It's really challenging to say something in English that is elegant in Greek or Hebrew and then say it also with elegance in our modern language. It's a rather ethereal idea, the idea that Tyndale was behind Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon because of the respect. I mean, he is a martyr. He died. He was put to the stake, right? Yeah. yeah he was burned yeah. at the stake for his contribution of translating the Bible. So it was a dangerous thing to embark upon in those days. And yet Tyndale is the one who, if you're talking about individual translators, the one most relied upon by the King James translators because of just the beauty of the language that he was able to bring to the text. Anyway, all of that, of course, brings me back to your translation, an individual effort to try and create a translation of the New Testament which is aware, sympathetic to Latter-day Saint values, to Latter-day Saint perspectives, and how, you know, there may be versions of the Bible that are like the New International Version, which don't take that approach and sometimes, sometimes offer translations of different verses, which are more worried about its political correctness than possibly Latter-day Saints ought to feel comfortable with. In fact, most people who, even you, who try and refer a Latter-day Saint to a translation of the New Testament that might be more comfortable than the King James Version might first recommend the New Revised Standard Version before you would recommend any of the international versions that came out in the, what, late 80s, 90s, in that period of time. For that reason, because those are less interested in making sure that King James language is somehow its beauty and poetry is preserved, the whole process 
was enlightening to me. I, I just hadn't realized how complex and also how individualized the choices could be when you talk about translating Greek into English. It has been such a long-standing tradition among Latter-day Saints that we rely upon the King James Version. And the whole idea that we possibly ought not, or at least be open to other translations was a new concept for me. I don't know if it is for other Latter-day Saints, but it ought to be, especially after reading yours. And the idea that you give us choices in your notes with, there are renderings of this verse that will give us this, and you need to know that you have that optional way of being able to understand this particular verse. I thought was insightful, It was, but it was just also a great gift. I mean, most Bibles don't do that. You have the committee making a choice. We're going to go with this manuscript, and uh, we're not going to even make the reading public aware that there is another way to look at it. I thought that that was wonderful, because then we could sort of go back to the advice that the Lord gave to Joseph Smith regarding the Apocrypha, right? where we could say those who are guided by the Holy Ghost, they're going to be able to make a spiritually mature decision about which rendering of the Greek they prefer. But also just that everyday language kind of a feel sometimes gives you just a different interpretation of the whole Scripture. And I I wasn't expecting it to be that profound of an experience, but it really is, so that in a sense you feel like you're reading the New Testament for the first time. Yeah, I hope so. I'm, I've been encouraged by some responses I've had, personal responses, where families are feeling that they're able to read the Bible with their kids, their children understand it. I would love to see Bible literacy increase. and So yeah, I, the readability is very important to me, At having someone access, like you said, a kind of a deeper swath of scholarship and feeling that it's not confrontational to know that there are different readings and renderings of verses. I hope that message gets out there from the translator's perspective. Those are important points. My particular emphasis or interest right now, because I'm writing a novel and I am discussing the last week in the life of Christ. Right now, I'm I'm here hovering over the events of the Garden of Gethsemane and wondering how to interpret it and trying to think of all that I've been taught throughout the course of my membership in the church. I've been a member of the church since I've been 18 years old, but that's fine. I don't think prior to 18 years old, I was immersed in trying to read the New Testament anyway. So becoming a member of the church put me in that habit anyway and going on a mission, etc. I took a class at BYU on the New Testament from Dr. Anderson. You can't get much better than that. He opened up a lot of wonderful things. I mean, being able to read the New Testament, get through that often difficult language. All of the manuscripts of the New Testament, just to be clear, are written in Greek, the versions that we currently have. Is that right? and starting about the 5th, 6th century, we do have other languages at that point. Uh, we do have Latin manuscripts 
not a lot early on, but later we have lots of them. We have Coptic fragments, but we don't have anything in Aramaic or Hebrew. So you're right to say from point zero to the first three or four hundred years, it's Greek. Nothing in Aramaic, not even Matthew or even Paul's letter to the Hebrews. I mean, nothing. What are the earliest antiquity manuscripts that are given the most respect? The Sinaiticus? Uh, Sinaiticus is obviously a, a very important manuscript, maybe maybe the most important, singularly important manuscript. We have a papyrus collection of Paul's epistles, P46, and that becomes an incredibly important witness early on, 3rd century. When you hit those early complete Bibles like Vaticanus or Sinaiticus, those become really the foundation, if you will, the skeleton of the reconstruction of the Bible. And then we tend to compare the new witnesses that we find, like little scraps of papyrus or a page here or a page there. We begin to compare those to something like Sinaiticus or or Vaticanus or Alexandrinus. But, but the yeah, point is, they're all different. There are slight variations in all of them. There are, and there's two ways to see those differences. Some like to characterize those differences as a kind of argument for instability of the Bible, and that's fair on one level, but I think most readers would, or listeners would like to know, you know, and, and us, you and I, there's this issue that a lot of the Bible is really stable. When we talk about differences, we're talking about a different type of the word and or a different order of words, but the same words, a different punctuation. And so when we get down to verses that are really unclear, you know, what does this mean or, or real corruption, that's not a very large percentage of verses. No, as I've said in my emails to you, what I find most fascinating is the unity that the Gospels have, the idea that they're telling the same story using different words and a different perspective, and yet they're testifying of the same experience, just as a different person, a human personality would talk about the same event in a different way. You did your doctorate degree on the book of John, your doctoral yeah. thesis. Well, that's cool, because that's what I wanted to talk about, probably most, that and Luke, with regard to the atonement as Latter-day Saints interpret it from the scriptures, especially the book of Luke. I think we put most of our emphasis on the book of Luke because of DNC 1918, where it says that cause such suffering, I'm paraphrasing, but cause such suffering that even I, God, the greatest of all, bled at every pore and trembled. Otherwise, when you look at the verse in Luke, it seems metaphorical, as it were great drops of blood, so that you can come away with an interpretation of Luke is just trying to express the agony of it, but he's not necessarily saying it was blood, it just, it was so painful, is it was as if it were. And and you could live with that. It's like you could say, okay, that makes sense, because that that doesn't force us to try and envision Christ as he walks out of the garden and greets 
his disciples and wakes them all up, or as he is arrested, he's not shocking in appearance. <laughs> he's not covered in blood. His clothes aren't stained in blood. Nobody describes him that way in any other scenes that are post-events that take place in the garden. And the description in Luke and possibly from DNC 1918 gives you the impression that that's what you ought to envision. But that would have been something that would have kept the priests far away from him if that's how he really appeared. And I'm not quite sure how to interpret that. So was he covered in blood or was he not? Yeah, let me, let me back up just a little bit if you think, and this is simply my perspective on this. I think when we look at the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, the narrative from almost day one, but particularly after the baptism, is event-driven. There are stories and there are sayings and there are teaching moments that all form part of a, a larger narrative thrust towards Gethsemane and the cross. And I think a Latter-day Saint sees Gethsemane as almost equal to or nearly equal to the cross. But when you think about when they're if they're if they're really doing this, they're trying to get you to Gethsemane and his death and then the resurrection to add that in as well. You have to ask why they told what they told. Why the gospel writers told what they told. Yeah, why why not tell more about Gethsemane? Why not relate as you raise the question, why not mention his physical appearance? And Matthew in particular makes Gethsemane an altar, a kind of sacrificial altar. And, and what I mean by that is Matthew seems to envision Gethsemane as the moment where Christ effectively and willingly offers himself. And that offering of self is characterized by Matthew as a turning over of his will. Matthew's account, and I think you noted in your email, there's these differences. And Matthew's difference is... Jesus asserts a different will than God's, that he allows and, and indicates, I'll accept your will. And if you stand back and look at that as a portrait, you almost have Christ, the Lamb, willingly laying down his life. It, it's like the mind of the animal that's being killed on the altar, saying, I, I don't want to do this. But when I see your perspective, I do it. And when I see my own, I don't. And Luke... I think has a very close perspective, but he uses that word agony, which is a word of struggle in Greek literature. It's a word of contest, a wrestling. Agony is a great translation of it, but to kind of get behind it, it's a wrestling, a, a struggle, a turmoil. And I don't, I really don't know. And I've asked the same question you're asking me. Did he bleed from every pore? I see Doctrine and Covenants 19, yes, but I think if you had asked Luke, I think what he's saying is he's in a crushing agony, and he, he's trying to describe, I've never seen it, he may have talked to people who saw it, but he didn't see it, and I think what's so moving for him is the idea that he wrestled to the point of bloodshed, and that blood is his own. I don't know if Luke was aware or not if he had was covered in blood, which you know rightly is a really big historical moment. But it's that altar scene again. It's the animal 
being laid upon the altar of the temple and getting its throat cut. And so to me, I know this will sound hard to a lot of Latter-day Saints if, this, if you do air this, or, and I don't mean it to be confrontational in any way. I don't know that either one of them saw that moment as atonement, but as turning over, of giving back, of, of relinquishing. And maybe that is beginning of atonement, but I don't think that was the moment for them. I think it was the point where Jesus, where the narrative takes its turn. This is me giving up, giving over rather to, to God. Right, and, and I don't, I don't. from your translation of uh, the New Testament, maybe it's clear in the King James Version, but I don't think I've had the maturity spiritually and the knowledge where I've immersed myself in the New Testament the same way as I have reading your translation recently. And so as I read this, it's easy to gain the impression that the atonement itself, that Latter-day Saints' emphasis of the atonement taking place in—would you agree that that is the common interpretation that Latter-day Saints have given? We have been indoctrinated on the idea that the atonement, the at-one-ment, took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's really only a more recent agreement by those who teach about the atonement to say, well, we're talking about the entire time period from what took place in the Garden until Christ gave up the ghost on the cross. That is the act of atonement, which of course, we're able to accept and we're able to nod and we're able to say, okay, that makes sense. But at the same time, it waters down some kind of a visualization that we demand as readers. What was the actual moment where Christ paid for the sins of mankind? I'm not sure that we need to be obsessed about the moment but we've definitely been trained sort of to think about what was the moment. And it seems to me that early church leaders wanted to emphasize what took place in the garden, possibly because of DNC 1918. However, I presented just the idea, I threw it out there, nothing about DNC 1918 definitively ties that to the book of Luke. It doesn't tie it to the moment where Luke says, blooded every poor. I mean, it sort of does because it also mentions, I was willing to take this cup and you add a beautiful analysis, at least as your impression from the Greek manuscripts themselves, that this is symbolism that relates right back to the sacramental cup as it was handled in the Last Supper. That's what Christ is referring back to when he talks about the cup. He's talking about that cup is what Jesus is willing to accept, and what that cup later and still to this day symbolizes to us when we partake of the sacrament. What's your impression with regard to the moment, or is it even necessary to interpret there being a specific moment where Christ took on the sins of the world? That's a really good question. I, I, tend to, I tend to agree with you that it's probably the prevailing Latter-day Saint view that it begins in Gethsemane and ends in, with the cross. I think that's probably correct. For me, a uh, New Testament perspective, I think that 
other than when, in the moment of beginning, I think they wanted to know more how. And did it cover sin? Did it pay for sin? Was it a, a new lamb on the altar? Was it restitution? Putting things back on, if you will, right? Exemplary. I'm really convinced that a lot of Christians saw Christ as the example of turning our will over to God, and that is atonement. And it's not that all of these things are right or wrong and one is better or worse. I think Latter-day Saints in our modern world love to define and structure information in linear ways. So it begins here, ends here. That's a really great way to think. But I think the ancient mind really wanted to know, when I look at Christ and I read his life and I want to experience the atonement or what he did, I think a lot of them were convinced that I do what he does. Paul talks about being conformed to his sufferings. Paul sees his shipwreck in the Mediterranean as part of atoning, as part of him becoming like Christ. And so for him, I, I don't think it would have made sense to think of one moment of beginning or end, but rather a conformity that takes place over time. And so I suppose more than anything, I'd want to expand the discussion rather than define the moment of when. Now, having said that, I do think there's an argument for the linear beginning with Luke in particular, that when blood is spilled, it's the beginning of the end of his life. If that's the point we want to recover and add value to, I think you do have to say that the first drop of blood that's shed is perhaps, if you will, the beginning of the cross. We're all conceding that we don't comprehend the atonement. We don't understand. We try to, and we accept it. I mean, that's actually the biggest moment of faith, I think, that's required from any Christian, is that we accept that Christ paid for our sins. I'm wondering if it's possible that Latter-day Saints decided to emphasize what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane, and forgive my ADHD, but now that takes me to another subject, and that is... (laughs) We use that phrase, the Garden of Gethsemane, with a very sacred thought, a very sacred feeling behind it. And yet you, in a sense, want to make sure that we understand the word Gethsemane only means olive press. We don't necessarily know that there was a specific garden. There's no need to identify a tourist attraction of a specific place on the Mount of Olives that was the Garden of Gethsemane, so to speak, because in essence, we're just talking about a random garden that was a place where they grew olive trees and probably had an olive press. But I think it's John who says that they did meet at this place and have discussions often. Yeah, yeah, and John is the one who uses the word garden to describe it, whereas the others emphasize the olive press. That was there. So and it might have even been a plot of land that was not currently in use as a garden, or just a place where all olive growers would bring their produce in the season thereof and have their olives literally pressed into oil, and that that's where they actually held, or that's where the Savior knelt, and that's where the apostles fell asleep and where he was constantly waking them up. 
which of course begs the question of if Christ is experiencing this agony and he's having trouble keeping his apostles awake and watching, who is witnessing this? Who Who is telling their perspective of what Jesus Christ was saying or experiencing? Because they were all asleep. Now, in the case of Matthew, we might assume Matthew kept one eye open, okay? I mean, we don't know that. But somebody is talking about a personal witness of what Jesus Christ actually experienced at that moment. Latter-day Saints sometimes can simply draw the impression, well, you know, the Lord can give you a revelation of exactly what Jesus Christ experienced. But there's no doubt that the overriding theme of every gospel, of every event in the New Testament, is that we put this together as a result of witnesses giving their ideas, their contribution to what occurred in the life of Jesus Christ during the ministry of Jesus Christ. So who witnessed what Jesus Christ actually did? And then you go to John. John throws a new rendering of the entire event. He doesn't even talk about suffering. He doesn't even talk about any kind of prayer where he's saying, take this cup from me. But he still offers this glorious intercessory prayer. And we've even given it that capitalized term, intercessory prayer. And it's not found in any other gospel. You often, one interpretation of John, and you're the best man to ask about it, is that the gospel of John, being the last written, was a gospel whose objective was to try and subtly correct or restore some misinformation or missing doctrine that may not have existed in the other three synoptics. You get the impression that the author of John was well aware of the fact that the other three synoptic gospels existed and may have read them, and simply said, let me fill in some of the blanks here, or possibly correct. But he did it in such a careful political way that he didn't want to undermine. He didn't want to lessen the importance of the other three Gospels. He knew how sacred they were. But let me just add my two cents so that people have a better understanding of what it was that the Savior did. Let me make sure that I fill in some of the missing information. That's generally the impression that I get from reading scholarly works, that they're saying that was John's motive, faithful scholarly works. They're saying John was trying to fill in missing information, correct a few points of mistaken information from other synaptic gospels, but at the same time be do it very carefully and respectfully because he knew that the people loved the synoptic gospels. But let me just add a few things. Is that an accurate picturing of of what John's motive was or whoever the author? I mean, it is a fair appraisal, the idea that John himself may not have been the author of John. And I think the best evidence for that is the fact that it constantly refers to the disciple whom Jesus loved, at least our modern sensibilities about that would be, well, 
that's kind of egotistical <laughs> to sit back and say, always constantly referring to someone in the first person as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he beats Peter in a foot race <laughs> to the tomb. But that would be what a direct disciple of John would do. Their overwhelming respect for John would be to kind of emphasize his role in what took place during all the events of the life of Christ. And so, you know, we may still be dealing with someone who had direct association with John, even if it wasn't John himself. I think that that's a fair assessment, and it certainly doesn't diminish the importance of the Gospel of John to think that he himself was not the direct author. However, it seems abundantly clear that the author of John was a close associate of John or of other apostles, but John in particular. Is that all accurate? I mean, is that I'm just blubbering on about material and impressions that I have and wondering if there's any accuracy to it or how you might add to it. Yeah, let me let me try to bring a couple of threads together that, that you've mentioned. If we started this issue of what is Gethsemane for John or or would he have ever used that phrase? And you think again about his narrative. And the way his narrative is built is there's a witness that's very, very close to Jesus, effectively closer than any of the other Gospels might claim. Now, that's from John's perspective. I'm not making that claim as a historian. But as John is telling his story, he wants you to know that there's this insider, a disciple that Jesus loved. And in his telling... Like the others, there's this movement towards the crucifixion, and the narrative is building and building. And when he gets to the moment of Gethsemane, and he wants to tell, if you will, the same thing that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have told in different ways, you mentioned that, well, he must know their stories, and he must be aware of that. If that's the case, he describes it, he's the only author to describe it, he uses the word kapos, which is a word that can mean vineyard. It could mean orchard. It could mean garden in a broad sense, but not a garden where you might grow carrots or, or corn or something like that, but more of a cultivated plot of land that could be used for the production of fruits. Greek has a word for a real garden that's like a sense of a beautiful place with trees where you sit and contemplate. That word's paradisos, from which we get paradise. And he doesn't use that. So when you think about John's movement of the narrative, here's a witness telling you that at the moment of Gethsemane, Jesus moved into a sphere where there, that's productive, that's agriculturally productive. And it's as though the story is going to plant a seed that's going to sprout into something new. He's literally going into land that can be cultivated or arable. And that new seed will be the death of Jesus. And maybe it's a little rough for some ears to hear, but the water that will plant that seed and grow it will be the blood of Jesus. So he's not totally distant from Luke in particular. He's more akin to the idea that that's a topic I don't want to talk about, but it's built into his narrative. Something happened there that he thinks telling you and I the words that were spoken, this, as you said, the great intercessory prayer 
the high priestly prayer. Somehow those words... Which, which by the way, just so, I mean, people will understand, that's all of John chapter 17 is the longest prayer, and you note this, is the longest prayer of Jesus Christ in any location except possibly for Third Nephi. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so I, I think when you kind of stand back for a minute, with, if you're micro-focusing on the words, that's going to give you one perspective that's valuable. But if you stand back for a minute, Luke and Matthew and Mark's prayer is too short to produce the wrestle, the necessary, the agony necessary. And I think you could say, from a faith perspective, that John's trying to tell you that these are the words he was agonizing over, the departure, the loss of his friends, the loss of his disciples, not in the sense they're falling away, but he's leaving. And that, if you will, when you overlay with Luke, produces the agony of Gethsemane. It's a departure, it's friendships being changed forever. And I recently gave a talk, well, technically now a year ago at Easter, and I tried to point out that for early Christians, and particularly these disciples, that the crucifixion and the empty tomb were not triumphant. That's not a triumph for a friend of Jesus, that this is a story characterized by loss, by suffering, by struggle, and I know it's, I'm not trying to counter our modern perspective, but the ancient perspective is that Gethsemane and the cross and the tomb are tragedy. And it becomes triumph over time as people start to put this back together. And one of the really powerful things now, going back to this witness, is he sees all this. He, he's part of the story. And he gains. You, you remember in John 2, he tells you, we didn't get this stuff until after the resurrection. Like, you're becoming a disciple with him. You're saying, well, I saw some of this stuff. I didn't fully get it. But I've pieced it together, and now I have a different view. And, and I think that's what the author, I believe that's what the author is trying to do, is have the beloved disciple become a type of all disciples the you and I in the story. Well, what to me is so moving about the Gospel of John is the dialogue that he has with specific, it, it's interesting that it names such specific disciples. They just didn't understand. He's sitting there saying, I'm leaving you. I'm going, but I'm preparing a place for you. You're going to come to me. And the disciples are agonizing about them. The disciples, we're talking about Christ's agony in the garden. The disciples are agonizing. They're thinking, what are you talking about? They've seen all these miracles. They have the expectation that they've probably had beaten into their heads since they were youths, that the Messiah is he's going to be a military conqueror. And they're expecting, in fact, probably the whole population of Jerusalem at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, they were expecting this to be the moment that he rode into the temple and took command, that he basically became the leader of the world. And the disciples are just trying to understand, why didn't that happen? Why... 
we've watched, we've been with you since the beginning. We've watched some incredible things. Now we're confused. We don't understand what your mission is. We don't, and you feel that, and you also feel from Christ a sense of his humanity as he is almost pleading with his disciples in a sense of sympathy and in a sense, as you describe, of loss that you guys are about to experience some real grief. And I want you to prepare your hearts for this. And John, I think more than any other gospel writer, captures that. And his intercessory prayer is, is a part of, of capturing that feeling. The disciples really did not understand what was about to take place. This all had to come in future months as they came to grips with the fact of, no, this happened exactly the way the Savior told us it was going to happen. It was supposed to happen this way. And it is the beginnings of the gospel, the New Testament, the good news. It did occur exactly as it was supposed to occur. So even at the point of the night of the Savior's arrest, the disciples are still wrestling with the idea of what does this all mean? And they didn't come to that understanding until the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, became a part of their lives on the day of Pentecost or, or just over time as they contemplated the tragedy that occurred on this day, the letdown of not only the 12 disciples, the 12 men who later became apostles, you know, 11, I suppose you could say, with the replacement being Matthias, and all of their efforts to try and comprehend what did this all mean? Why did we go through all this? Of course, all of that would have been clarified when Jesus Christ was resurrected on the third day. And they had the opportunity to see him, to talk to him, to feel the prints of the nails in his hands, all of this. Then they started to really understand. That's, that's really probably the moment when they were faced with, now I get it. Now I understand. I'm starting to really grasp what it means to have this new interpretation of Judaism that I wasn't brought up with, I never understood. I have to understand the Messiah in a completely different way than I ever understood it before. It was an intellectual and, and emotional and a spiritual struggle for those men, for those men who then led the church. But they came to that understanding step by step, carefully, the exact same way that each of us individually have to come to that understanding. I mean, from that perspective, I just love the humanness, and I love the—that's why I write novels, right? Because I enjoy looking at it from the perspective of real people having to come to this understand. There's, there's just a depression, the depression that everybody feels on that day. And probably the depression began— right after Jesus Christ marched into the temple on the day of the triumphal entry, and nothing happened. He didn't declare himself the king of Israel. 
the kingdoms of David and Solomon were not reborn at that moment. And the people, all of his followers, all of those who were groupies who kind of gathered at Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, that's kind of where you imagine everybody gathered who was a follower of Jesus, and you get the impression that they're all pretty depressed. Things are not happening the way that they thought that they were going to. And then you also, from that, get the understanding why everybody was cheering on Jesus and laying palm reeds in front of the donkey as he rides into Jerusalem. And a couple of days later, they're calling for him to be crucified. We've often talked about how it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who started that chant and who started that mob riot feeling. But the people fell into that because this guy did not do what we have been taught all our lives that he was supposed to do. So we're disappointed. We're mad. So, yes, crucify him. It's interesting, at the triumphal entry, crowds pressing in on Jesus Christ, and by the way, on Lazarus. I mean, Lazarus was kind of a celebrity in his own right. They felt he'd been raised from the dead. So he's part of the triumphal entry. And so we have this parade of celebrities going into Jerusalem, and I think the people thought they were going to declare themselves kings. And it didn't happen. And so the people were then in their state of despondency and depression. They were willing to go ahead and accept the judgment of the Sanhedrin, that crucifixion, yeah, that's too good for this guy because he's a phony, he's a fraud. He didn't do what we've been taught all our lives, what you, the priests of the Sanhedrin, taught us the Messiah was going to do. He didn't do it. He was just another fake. They'd been dealing with fake after fake for generations, and this man was no better than all the others. And this was the one that we had the most hope in. It's an interesting psychological study. What happened during that week? You know, I mean, so many people have brought their impressions of what happened to it. And I wondered what you might add to what I'm just rambling on about here. Yeah, when you think about unfulfilled wishes and unfulfilled dreams and whatnot, Acts starts with a lot of energy. They've decided to... You're talking about the Book yeah, of Acts? Yeah, Book of Acts. And it starts with a lot of community energy, a lot of, a lot of focus to live, if you will, a united order, a kind of let's sell our property. And, and they're taking care of the poor. They're really trying to achieve a type of community that has you know, inequality in it and, and other things, just leveling, if you will. But one way to see that is that the tragedy generates a lot of interest to create a society that Jesus can come back to. When we look at it, it becomes a type of the early church and other things. But one way to see it is the society trying to mitigate the tragedy. Let's prepare a place. Let's prepare people. Let's prepare prepare our hearts even to, to be ready for him. That's what we're going through today, right? In fact, that's been... Everybody has misestimated when the second coming is going to be. 
we hear the phrase or, or hear the scripture, no man knoweth the day or the hour, and yet we all like to think we know the day and the hour, and that we can make it happen. There's nothing wrong with that, I think. We want to bring about a Zion society worthy of the receipt of the second coming of the Savior. So what you're describing is that the disciples, from the very moment that Christ departed, the second time after his resurrection, that's what they're eager to do. They're eager to create a world, a community, that Christ is willing to come back to. And they all believed it was soon. They all believed that it would happen within their lifetimes or very shortly thereafter. And they didn't understand. They weren't able to achieve it. And we have not been able to achieve it either. But that's our goal. I think that's the yeah. most important theme that you can take from all of this is we're still trying to build that community that is worthy, a worthy place for the Savior to come back to. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think it gives a different way to see New Testament as a story of tragedy that becomes triumph, that gives us a reason to do what we do. It doesn't always articulate, like you said earlier with Gethsemane, it doesn't always articulate the exact moment it began and the exact moment it ended, or even the how. But it's a story that continually evolves, if you will, almost, where's Jesus? Is he, is he with us? Is he coming back to us? And if he's coming back to us, we need to be ready for him. We need to be the type of people he wants to be with. Well, I discussed this a little bit in my correspondence with you through email. The Latter-day Saint perspective that the symbolism of the cross, that's something that we reject. As I look at it today with, I don't know if I'm looking at it with uh, a more watered-down perspective or with a more merciful and even insightful perspective, I don't see anything wrong with that symbolism and what it means to other Christian denominations today. As a missionary, of course, we were often asked, you know, why aren't there any crosses on your church? And, you know, you've heard the axiom that we commonly would respond something like, well, if Jesus Christ was killed with a gun, would you wear a gun around your neck? And that, that kind of a dismissive response when somebody is referring to something very sacred to them and what it symbolizes to them, I wonder if our early rejection of that symbolism was more an effort for us to distinguish ourselves from other denominations as opposed to really understanding that it's a rather harmless symbol. I would agree. I would agree completely. I feel that, that it's an artifact of us becoming a community, of us becoming a, a people. And it's not surprising to me that we were turned off by the actual cross itself. I think what Latter-day Saints were trying to say at the time is when we look up and we see Christ on the cross, uh, you know, a broken body, I think we were saying in our 20th century and 21st century mindset, that's not a symbol of hope. And I think what we missed by saying that is that our other Christian sisters and brothers do see that that way. 
They see it as triumph, the lifting up, the raising up of the eyes, the fulfillment. They saw different things. And, and as we tried to become a community, I'm afraid we were turned off for reasons that now, in retrospect, maybe weren't doctrinal or weren't, weren't necessary. I can see how we might have been turned off by the bloody images, you know, the where they would where they would uh, try and emphasize something that was just replaying how torturous or agonizing the cross was. And you've seen some of those images there. They exist. The simplicity, though, of just a cross, as it stands on most other denominational churches or as it hangs around the neck of a believer, I think is a pretty harmless thing. I'm, I'm, in a sense, neutral to the idea. I respect its symbolism and what it means to another Christian. I think that it's okay for Latter-day Saints to think, you know, let's think about what that means to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's okay. It's certainly nothing that we need to look down upon. It's their way of celebrating that moment of the atonement. And it's just fine. Agree. Chris, it's been really good to talk to you. Hopefully, did we get to the bottom of what you were hoping for? I don't know. I mean, we could have this conversation all day. There's you. You are a teacher at heart. I mean, you're a professor, and you're in constant demand. I would think that this book is putting you in even greater demand, uh, especially on a year where the church is focusing upon the New Testament. I don't know if you have a spare moment to breathe. So any time that I can get from you to be able to get further insight on the atonement, I think what I have to settle with as an author is just trying to pin down a moment when Christ paid for our sins is unnecessary. We're not really looking at a moment in time as much we're looking at the whole idea that Jesus Christ had the power to not do it. He did not have to die that day. And he chose to do so for us. That whole act is the atonement. That decision on the part of God, on the part of the Son of God, that's the atonement. And we don't really need to try and pin it down to a specific event or time period or anything else. I'm on board with you, Chris, there. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me today, talking it out, and I'm sure we'll be in touch. I appreciate it, Dr. Wayman. You have a wonderful day. And Tom is great, too. Tom, Tom. Yeah, you've told me that a dozen times. I ought to take you up on that. Thank you so much. Again, I can't emphasize enough what an honor it is to have Dr. Wayman, Tom, contribute his insight, which for me presents a much more in-depth and even a greater appreciation of what Jesus Christ endured, a mortal man with very human mortal emotions, facing a decision point that, if it were possible, he would have preferred not to endure. For some, maybe that diminishes the atonement in their eyes and the Savior's ultimate sacrifice. Are you kidding me? For me, it does anything but. It emphasizes, adds an exclamation point to what the Savior's choice really meant. He didn't want to do it. 
He didn't have to do it, but he did it anyway. He did it because his father asked him to. If there had been any other way, any other mechanism besides offering himself up as a lamb to be slaughtered for the sins of the world, he wanted to know. Unfortunately, as the Savior realized, there was no alternative. So he voluntarily accepted his fate. He drank the cup. It's likely only a novelist who gets hung up on the literalness of bleeding at every pore, how that ought to be portrayed if it was in the garden or on the cross. Honestly, I don't know what I'm going to do with that yet in my story. Give me your opinion. I'd love to hear your perspective in the comments section on foreverlds.com. Whatever I decide, however I dramatize it, it's almost certain I'll be way off as far as what really happened. I'm just doing the best I can. Thankfully, in the larger scheme of things, it really doesn't matter. For me, the atonement is defined by two things. The Savior's obedience, his decision to follow through, to drink the cup according to his Father's will. And secondly, the consequences of what happened as a result of his decision. And I suppose the fact that the Savior didn't stop those consequences. He certainly had the power to. He could have altered the events that were set in motion at any time. But for the sake of you and me and the rest of humankind... Because of his infinite love he felt and feels for each one of us, as reflected by the very words he uttered from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He completed what he promised, what he'd promised to do from the foundation of the world. He endured to the end, until the very moment when he declared, it is finished. Then it was over. He won, and we won. And our gratitude should be eternally unbounded. Remember, this podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm just privileged to be a member of that faith, and even more privileged to have an opportunity to trumpet my testimony of its magnificence and its truthfulness whenever and however I can. Thank you for joining us today on Forever LDS. I'd like to give a shout-out to Neil Sylvester, who actually took me up on my request a few weeks ago to type up transcripts of prior interviews that we've conducted on Forever LDS. Somebody, I don't remember who, specifically requested that we post a transcript of my first interview with Dr. Wayman, episode 41. Well, now it's up there. There's a few of them Neil is still typing up. but And by the way, Neil is an aspiring author himself and has a new book published entitled The Hero Doctrine, Awakening Your Eternal Potential. A great read, although right now I'm just amazed and grateful that Neil is apparently a very fast and efficient typist. I'm sure he'll make the transcript for today's interview with Dr. Wayman available soon. 
for those who prefer to read these things or who would like to listen and read simultaneously. I'm actually one of those when I'm not driving, of course, and the opportunity permits. Stay close to the Lord, listeners. If you don't feel as close to the Lord today as you did yesterday, well, whose fault is that? You know. Thank you, everybody, for your dedication to Forever LDS. It's tough. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. I really need to set up a Patreon or GoFundMe to help out and still work on my novel, Time. It's all about finding time. Until we meet back here again, have a marvelous Easter and a marvelous year. This is Chris Heimerdinger, and this is Forever LDS. Thank you.